Okay, so I will uh, I will start this uh, with a quote um, that goes like this: Man tries to satisfy his need for aggression at the expense of his neighbor, to exploit his work without compensation, to use him sexually without his consent, to to appropriate his goods, to humiliate him, to inflict suffering on him, to torture and to kill him. Okay, so this is not Marquis de Sade, this is Freud, and it's Freud from Civilization and its Discontents, the, the paper, the text written in 1930s. And I think we could say kind of that uh, easily, that it could be easily written today, at least if we focus on this kind of a more pessimist assessment of the times we live in. We don't seem to be so far away from this uh, in as far as the general climate goes. But in Freud, this particular quote is part precisely of the discussion of the Laude neighbor uh, uh, comment, uh, love one uh, thy neighbor as thyself. Uh, and together with the other equally famous commandment, love thine enemies, uh, which Freud actually considered to be the same thing, he found it incomprehensible. Why should we do it? But above all, how on earth are we to achieve this, particularly if we take the word love seriously? Uh, so this is this uh, kind of possibly controversial part of Freud, also I think uh, one of the rare parts in Freud which uh, on which uh, Lacan, Jacques Lacan, comments with uh, critically, so to say, with kind of saying that it points to a certain limit in Freud. Okay, so now I will, before I go into more concrete also political examples, let, I will just ask you to um, bear with me for a couple of minutes in which I would like to sketch a little bit what I think is a very important um, theory or concept of the neighbor as Lacan constructed. Uh, his concept of the, what the, the neighbor means that he takes from, from the Freudian paper uh, this conceptualization of Lacan, which actually aims at explaining precisely uh, this, this what seems like almost inevitable uh, uh, aggressivity, aggression, hostility that springs up every time we come too close to our neighbor or to something in relation to our neighbor. So I guess the first uh, thing to point out is that the term neighbor does, of course, not refer here in, in Lacan particularly simply to the person next door. Uh, but it refers or embodies a certain structure, a structure that Lacan termed extimité. So we were speaking about intimacy just a way ago, but and this is actually a term that he coined upon uh, extimacy, uh, intima intimacy with the prefix X. So pointing precisely to this kind of a crossing of the divide on the impossibility of sustaining the divide between inside and outside. Uh, extimité, extimacy as a kind of intimate exterior or external foreign intimacy. Something, yes, tra transfers to this uh, divide. Kind of coincidence of something uh, most intimate, intrinsic to me, uh, and at the same time exterior and often striking me as foreign. Something of myself that I cannot but find yeah, most foreign to me, even disgusting. 
and just to give you a, I think, good plastic example of this structure and of its effects, uh, an example provided by Slavoj Žižek, as is often the case when it comes to examples. Let's mm -hmm. say uh, you spit into a clean glass, uh, and it would be very hard to make you swallow the, your saliva back. So there is something that is that just a moment ago was a very intimate part of you, integral part of you, and all of the sudden in this passage it becomes something, it gets transformed into completely foreign object, object, object of almost uh, absolute disgust. So it is anyway neither yours not, not foreign, but it has this kind of a bizarre structure. So. Um, this structure is what is at work, according to Lacan, also at the very heart of the relationship between the subject and the other, the others, which is never simply a relationship of some kind of symmetrical mirroring, uh, recognizing oneself in the other, and so on, but also always involves also a much more complex uh, dialectics, passing through this kind of uh, irreducible dimension, precisely of an extimate object this famous, infamous object a, object small a, as it is called in, in Lacan. So, but we could say this structure, uh, this strange structure is always uh, there, but it is not always visible. And the injunction to love, or simply love as such, uh, is precisely one of the things uh, which involves going beyond a certain limit in this relationship to the other, going beyond, let's say, the imaginary limit that separates me from the other as two self-contained uh, entities, or other simply as my fellow creature in the sense in which the, the French use this word semblable, mon semblable, this is the, 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 the person similar to me, that looks like. Okay, so uh, Lacan comments on this love thy neighbor commandment and on Freud's reaction to it uh, quite extensively in his seminar, The Ethics of psychoanalysis, and he deems Freud's aversion to it, which he, uh, of which he speaks critically, as I said, uh, as indicating Freud's fundamental belonging to the Aristotelian conception of the good and of morality. And uh, Freud is supposed to belong to this tradition, I'm really doing this in a very sketchy way, because of the way in which he formulated his famous pleasure principle, you know, which he proposed as the principle governing all mental uh, life, all events. Uh, he says, for instance, uh, we believe that um, uh, mental events, uh, that the course of this event is invariably set in motion by an unpleasurable tension and that it takes a direction such that its final outcome coincides with the lowering of the tension, that is, with an avoidance of unpleasure or a production of pleasure. So this is not, the pleasure principle is not about some active search uh, for pleasure or some hedonism. It's simply this kind of a uh, right measure, right balance uh, principle which is supposed to govern our uh, mental life or even physiological life. And uh, Lacan's point um, is that, like, let's say, traditional or Aristotelian morality is defined precisely by this kind of association of good with pleasure. He says traditional moralists always 
fall back into the root of persuading us that pleasure is good, that the path leading to good is blazed by pleasure. Okay, but Freud saw, as you know, that very often the pleasure principle also failed at its role, and that people were driven to do things that blatantly contradicted it, like repeating some again and again some clearly unpleasant traumatic experiences. And he was hence uh, kind of led to interrogate a beyond the pleasure principle, which is also the title of one of his famous essays, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, linking it to a kind of a destructive uh, dead drive, as he calls it there, as the opposite of the pleasure principle. Okay, but this opposition, as opposition, was already hard to sustain for Freud and Lacan uh, actually uh, rejected it. Um, I'm talking about this because it will bring us back to this question of extremacy in a moment. Namely, there seem to be, according to this kind of Freudian uh, uh, setting, two possibilities. We postulate, as Freud did at some point, that the existence of two, let's say, competing principles, like sometimes called Eros and Thanatos, or like life drives and the dead drive, coexisting uh, in human beings. Or else, instead of postulating that the pleasure principle, this principle of lowering tension and avoiding unpleasure, uh, instead of um, uh, postulating that the pleasure principle is not all there is to this economic side of our mental life, and hence introducing another principle, we conclude that the pleasure principle itself is much less straight and unproblematic than it seems to be. And this, I think, is basically Lacan's step or conclusion. Namely, and to put it very briefly, that the beyond against which it seems to protect us is actually its own impossible excluded kernel, some kind of, even if you want, imaginary full satisfaction going beyond the, uh, the right measure of it. So in this sense, the entire economy of the pleasure principle is based upon this kind of impossible excluded thing, this das ding that Lacan discusses in the ethics seminar, at its very core. And this economy is also what, according to Lacan, at least the Aristotelian right measure is, is all about. It is about not going beyond a certain limit there. Uh, and it is precisely at this kind of extimate place that of the thing that Lacan situates this famous jouissance, uh, enjoyment, precisely as different from simply pleasure as at contradicting the rule of the pleasure principle. We could say enjoyment in this uh, strong meaning of the term is beyond the pleasure principle so far as it gives kind of bearing to this thing. We are driven to the, do things which are out of this uh, uh, balance. It keeps haunting us also very often from the space of the other, precisely, this enjoyment. It usually strikes us as foreign enjoyment. And it gives rise to aggressivity. But in this sense, precisely, we could say that aggressivity does not simply originate in another kind of principle, some kind of death drive principle, as the other side of the pleasure principle but it's rather the other side of the pleasure principle, its own defense formation. It is precisely how it reacts to something that uh, where it does not want to go near. 
Um, so, and it is here precisely that this question of the loud thy neighbor also comes in, uh, because Lacan points out how for Freud, in his reading of the loud thy neighbor commandment, Freud puts strong emphasis on the term love, precisely, which is that what in the commandment at stake kind of breaks the fence or breaks defense, separating us from this kind of evil. The fence, and Lacan also speaks of the wall, constituted precisely by the pleasure principle, or if I prefer to put this way of putting it, by the traditional Aristotelian conception of the good. So, but what is this evil? As, as we saw, it is precisely enjoyment, jouissance, which is why Lacan can formulate the following assessment of the traditional concept of good, he says it is conceived so that it keeps us a long way from our jouissance. So far as good is conceived as a regulation of pleasure, and by pleasure it also indicates a beyond, although it is calculated to keep us on this side. Okay, so it is here, and I am now concluding with this first uh, introductory Lacanian part. It is here that the question of the neighbor comes in, in the injunction to love him, uh, the neighbor gives body to this beyond, precisely. And this raises the question of this kind of fundamental evil that dwells within the neighbor. But, and this is Lacan's kind of coup de force, if this is the case, then it also dwells within me, this evil. And he goes on to say, I quote, and what is more of a neighbor to me than this heart within which is that of my jouissance and which I don't dare go near? For as soon as I go near it, there rises up the unfathomable aggressivity from which I flee." End of quote. So it is structurally unclear, precisely uncertain, whether this excluded kernel of my being is indeed mine or the others. Or where is it situated? And if the other seems to possess it, I cannot remain indifferent to, to her. I can either love her or hate her, which at some level is not all that different also. You know, and uh, perhaps those of you who are a little bit in Lacan know this famous uh, formula from the seminar uh, 11, when he says, uh, um, uses this uh, paraphrasing, says it, I love you, but because inexplicably I love in you something more than you, this objectia, this treasure in you, I mutilate you. So there is this kind of, I love you, but as an envelope precisely of something which is in you more than you, which is, again, is there this kind of ambiguity of hostility and love. Okay, so I will uh, stop abrupt abruptly here, this kind of uh, sketching out of of e extremity and, uh, in Lacan, and um, I will jump from psychoanalysis to a very different sources which will preoccupy me mostly uh, in the rest of my talk, namely to the way in which the commandment to love one's neighbor is commented in uh, contemporary Western conservative politics from moderate conservative to extreme right. And we'll see as we go along how this rhymes at some point with uh, also what I was just presenting in relation to Lacan. So this right-wing conservative politics obviously has a problem with the commandment 
at stake. On the one hand, it has to somehow endorse it, uh, since a crucial element of, this, uh, of its discourse is the reference to Christianity as the core of our Western identity. So this is definitely something that one wants to claim. On the other hand, the commandment is felt as possibly ceding far too much to the neighbor as our other, precisely, and hence as a serious threat to this same identity that we want to, to claim. And uh, this became particularly palpable and explicit with the 2015 refugee crisis. And I will uh, start by giving you an example, namely when uh, in October 2015, uh, Tony Abbott, the Prime Minister of Australia at that time, uh, delivered the so-called Margaret Thatcher Lecture in London. Uh, he said, among other things, the following. So I will read you this quote from his talk. He said, the safety and prosperity that exist almost uniquely in Western, Western countries uh, is, an uh, uh, is an irresistible magnet. These blessings are not the accidents of history, but the product of values painstakingly discerned and refined, and of practices carefully cultivated and reinforced over hundreds of years. Implicitly or explicitly, the imperative to love your neighbor as you love yourself is at the heart of every Western polity. It expresses itself in laws protecting workers, in strong social security safety nets, and in the readiness to take in refugees. It is what makes us decent and humane, humane countries, and as well as prosperous ones. But, and this is now the, the obligatory but, but right now, right now this wholesome instinct is leading much of Europe into catastrophic error. No country or continent can open its borders to all comers without fundamentally weakening itself. This is the risk that the countries of Europe run now through misguided altruism." End of quote. Okay, so you see it's a very interesting, I guess, quote for many reasons. And before we attempt to kind of follow the meanders of this argument, I think it's only fair to mention that uh, Tony Abbott's speech was met in Australian media with, as one defender of Abbott put it, an, an anonymous chorus of jeers and condemnation. I mean, Christian commentators objected that uh, Jesus' commandment to love our neighbor is the heart of Christian morality and we can't simply set it aside when it happens to be costly or inconvenient. A Catholic priest stated that they were absolutely astounded and appalled by Abbott's remarks. And on social media, the following post on Facebook allegedly summed up the general feeling. So somebody wrote, he that is Abbott is so going to hell. Okay, so <laughs> this is not bad as a reaction to that. But in Christian Europe, this Christian sentiment did not prevail and particularly the self-proclaimed Christian politicians rather took recourse to, as you know, closing the borders, building walls or barbed wire fences and to implementing a severe, why not put it like this, screw the neighbor legislation. 
So what exactly did Abbott preach in London? As you saw, he did not simply reject the, the Christian commandment to love your neighbor, which he recognized even at the very heart of every Western polity, but <coughs> preached a kind of moderate, reasonable, modest usage of this commandment. Of course, you should love your neighbor, but reasonably not too much, not too many, not beyond a certain <coughs> limit. In other words, he called for, we could put it like this, for this kind of a properly Christian ethics to cede its place to this more kind of Aristotelian ethics of moderation and of the right measure. Or to put it in a different and probably more uh, succinct kind of formula, I would say he called for love to be substituted by altruism or philanthropy. And I think we can see this uh, quite clearly if we jump for a moment back to, to Freud. Namely, Freud was not religious, but he saw, of course, that the love your neighbor, that to love your neighbor precisely beyond this kind of reciprocity and beyond the limit of convenience and of a pleasurable exchange was the whole point of, of this commandment. And this whole point is precisely what Abbott designates as misguided altruism, which, by the way, I think it's a very interesting, intriguing definition of love. Love as misguided <laughs> altruism. <laughs> altruism turning askew. No, something weird happened there. Uh, and now, even if perhaps not visible at the first sight, this move is something that rhymes, I think, profoundly with the capitalist market economy and ideology. Uh, the emphasis on philanthropy and humanitarian projects is itself not, of course, anecdotal in capitalist discourse. It's quite uh, fundamental to it. Uh, but here I'm referring even more specifically to the logic that governs the field of goods as commodities and precisely their vague but at the same time direct association with the good in a kind of more moral sense. Uh, so just to argue this a little bit, you know, for, inst for instance, how uh, Jeremy Bentham formulated his famous principle of utility, uh, and utility will be a kind of important term uh, all the way through uh, this lecture. Um, uh, principle of utility as promoting the greatest good for the greatest number. And this moral principle has been and still is often criticized as something that uh, doesn't work because it inevitably comes up against the demands of my egoism. So one would say things like psychological ego egoism rules out acting to promote the overall well-being when that is uh, when uh, it is incompatib incompatible with one's own good. But I think very uh, incisively Lacan thought that this objection to Bentham was completely misplaced and insufficient, that it was not, that the problem was not there. And he says, this is again a quote from Lacan, a very interesting one, he says, my egoism is quite content with a certain altruism, altruism of the kind that is situated on the level of the useful. So here again we have the question of utility and of the useful. It is a fact of experience, this is still a quote, that what I want is the good of others in the image of my own. That doesn't cost much. What I want is the good of others provided that it remain in the image of my own. 
end of quote. So the point here that altruism and egoism are not actually opposed, they, they can combine without uh, problem so far as we are in the realm of goods. The limit of my good is not simply the good of the other or of others. Again, uh, just one sentence to quote from Lacan, it is the nature of the good to be altruistic, but that it's not the love of thy neighbor. Uh, so here we come back to the difference precisely between altruism as fully compatible with the field of goods and love as situated beyond a certain limit of the calculus of good and of goods precisely and simply of reciprocity. And uh, Lacan provides a very colorful explication of this limit. So I will give you one last quote which is very colorful and uh, I guess it would need a trigger warning if I were talking in the States, but uh, in this intimate <laughs> setting, perhaps not. So he says, uh, as long uh, as it is a question of the good, there is no problem. Our own and our neighbors are of the same material. San Martin shares his cloak, this refers to, uh, refers to the bi famous biblical story, and a great deal is made of it. Yet it is, after all, a simple question of training, materially material is, by its very nature, made to be disposed of. It belongs to the other as much as it belongs to me. We are no doubt touching a primitive requirement in the need to be satisfied here, for the beggar is naked, the beggar to whom San Martin gives his cloak. But perhaps over and above the need to be clothed, he was begging for something else, namely that San Martin either kill him or fuck him. In any encounter, there is a big difference in meaning between the response of philanthropy and that of love." End of quote. Okay, so first just a brief comment on this kill him or fuck him part. I think we should be careful uh, not to take this example simply as a kind of designating an objective limit with on the one side kind of pre-established list of things that can be shared and exchanged. Uh, and on the other side, this list of things that cannot. For although this difference definitely and structurally exists, uh, things, I think, pass from one side to another following all sorts of conditions in concrete historical, cultural, economic, social circumstances. Just imagine that he would ask you to kill him or fuck him. He's doing actually two things at the same time. First, he is choosing a kind of received trichic example of this difference of this limit between the pleasure principle, let's say, and this possibly beyond or something else. And secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, he is signifying that this limit itself, whenever and wherever it happens to appear, is precisely the point where the structure of fantasy, our fantasy, kicks in. This kind of plague of fantasy starts there. And just to, to, to give you an example, let's say it could be factually true that uh, Muslim culture has a different idea of manhood and womanhood as Christian culture. But when we start imagining what these Muslims would do to our women, the structure of fantasy, of our fantasy, is fully operative. It's precisely at that uh, limit. And which is also to say that it is our own 
jouissance that we keep at bay or uh, regulate with this kind of fantasies, not simply uh, imagining things about others, yes, but at, at the precise point when we are confronted with something uh, on um, uncomfortable on our side as well. So, but anyway, this is uh, uh, this would lead us uh, uh, too far away from the, the capitalist topic here. The question: What I wanted to argue is that capitalist discourse, in spite of its accent on uh, individualism and egoism, is not in contradiction with a certain kind of uh, altruism. So what is good? Good is something that can be divided, distributed, exchanged. Um, and our society, or rather our economy, brought this to its peak. Good is everything that sus subscribes, in principle, to the universal equivalent. Uh, this is even the definition of the structure of the good. Of the good. And I'm not trying to indulge in a kind of cheap moralizing criticism of our times. I really mean this as a kind of a logical definition of this word. It is in the nature of the good to subscribe to a general equivalent. Otherwise, it's not good. But again, love, that's a wholly different matter. And I think one of the first consequences which we are actually seeing at this very moment is that love is not good. It's not a good. There is a kind of ideological depreciation of love growing very fast in our societies and kind of trying to get rid of all these things in love that involve, involve a certain risk, a certain falling, a certain going beyond a certain limit of uh, precisely reciprocity. So this is a kind of a um, thing that is not uh, an, uh, anecdotal. It is not co no coincidence that it is very much discussed and at stake. Okay, but now I would like to return to Tony Abbott's speech. And I would like to suggest that he's quite right when he claims that the commandment to love your neighbor expresses itself in laws protecting workers, in strong social security safety nets, and in the readiness to take in refugees. What is bizarre about this claim of his is that what he's describing here is, of course, usually associated with the politics of the left and criticized as such by the conservative right to which he belongs. Uh, this Liberal Party of Australia that he led at the time of his speech is uh, this uh, center-right conservative Liberal Party. Moreover, the fact that the quote is from his Margaret Thatcher lecture cannot but strike us as doubly perverse. And as a matter of fact, Thatcher turns out to be a very good lead when it comes to researching the destiny of the neighbor in our conservative liberal politics. I mean, in the passage from the interview from uh, uh, 87, in which she launched the infamous thesis that there is no such thing as society, and which this speech was a pretty frontal attack precisely on laws protecting workers and particularly on strong social security safety nets, the word neighbor actually appears twice. And I will read you now a passage from this famous speech, uh, a bit longer passage, which in also contains these two um, appearances of the term neighbor. So this is Thatcher speaking. 
people are casting their problems on society and who is society. There is no such thing. There are individual men and women and there are families and no government can do anything except through people and people look to themselves first. It is our duty to look after, them, after ourselves and then also to help look after our neighbor. And life is a reciprocal business and people have got their uh, entitlements too much in mind without the obligations because there is no such thing as an entitlement unless someone has first met an obligation and it is, I think, one of the tragedies in which many of the benefits we give which were meant to reassure people that if they were sick or ill there was a safety net and there was help. That was the objective, but somehow there are some people who have been manipulating the system and some of those help and benefits that were meant to say to people all right, if you cannot get a job, you shall have a basic standard of living. But when people come and say, but what is the point of working? I can get as much on the dole. You say, okay, look, it's not from the dole. It is your neighbor who is supplying it. End of quote. Okay, so you see there are two points at which the neighbor appears. And of course, this is the, the speech, the lens, the, 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 the huge campaign against precisely the, the, the social, the society, which I think it's precisely the very infrastructure of solidarity, and not simply so this kind of, but this is just fantasy, nothing like this exists. So first, the neighbor appears in a strangely shameless reversal, simply of the biblical commandment, considering that the lines come from a devoted Christian it is our duty to look after ourselves first and then also to help look after our neighbor. And this reminds me actually, you know, this um, instruction that you get in airplanes, if the oxygen <coughs> mask fall down first, help yourself and then uh, assist the others. So it's this kind of uh, very simple practical logic. And the commandment is also said to be about reciprocity. So it's, there is no, in there are not only entitlements, but obligations and so on. So, but, uh, but the fact that this uh, commandment, m even more profoundly, does present her with a confusing problem was actually openly admitted by Thatcher on yet another occasion. This, is, this was a year later in a speech uh, that she gave in Scotland. Uh, she said, I confess that I always had difficulty with interpreting the biblical precept to love our neighbor as ourselves. Until I read some of the words of C.S. Lewis, he pointed out that we don't exactly love ourselves when we fall below the standards and beliefs we have accepted. Indeed, we might even hate ourselves <laughs> for some unworthy deed. So you see, this is, a, I think, a kind of a interesting approach at interpreting uh, the commandment at stake. Uh, uh, according to this interpretation, the commandment does, doesn't imply that we should always love our neighbor or love her unconditionally. Um, indeed, where does this commandment leave me if I happen to hate myself most of the time? It's even a valid question, like possibly leading to the question of my hatred of my own jouissance, but we can see from the speech that this question is not even seriously asked. I mean, this is not the, the issue why I could, would hate myself, uh, let alone addressed, but merely used to like kind of relativize 
the commandment to supply a kind of justification for not uh, obeying it. So we obviously don't always love ourselves, so we don't always need to love our neighbor. It's as simple as this. Of course, we should love our neighbor, but there is a limit to it and so on. We should form foremost take care of ourselves and of our family. And of course, neighbor and family are two very different concepts or kinds of proximity. It's a very, this is why for Thatcher, the family this still exists, but nothing beyond this. Um, okay, then, so this is about the first appearance of the term neighbor in this uh, famous speech. And then, if you remember, it reappears at the very end of the quote that I read. Um, this time, it appears as a kind of abused neighbor. If you are on the dole, you are uh, effectively stealing from your neighbor. Or perhaps put this another way around. People on the dole are actually bad neighbors, parasitic neighbors. Like society, the dole does not really exist. It is a term, or kind of institution, or even ideology that mispresents for Thatcher the actual relation between people. Um, so Thatcher's attack on the welfare state was also, I think, and primarily an attack on something else, namely precisely on love and solidarity among neighbors as social form as based on social mediation, social infrastructure. Welfare state or institutional solidarity is, among other things, I think, a kind of depersonalized love for one's neighbor. It is a delegated love with many social advantages that come with this delegation, precisely. And I think, uh, I, I'm aware that this may sound a little bit uh, strange, but I'm really here defending this kind of uh, delegated solidarity. The dole is there precisely so that I don't need to love my neighbor all the time. And the accent is on this, in this negation is on I, not on love. It is a delegation of this love to a social <coughs> infrastructure. Welfare state loves your neighbor for you. And if I insist on the term uh, love here, it is because I think in many respects, welfare state stretches beyond uh, simply reciprocity. It exists as something that transcends like altruism or as the mirroring precisely of my own good in the image of my neighbor's good. It has a slightly more different way of functioning. And perhaps in this sense, dole is not so much a safety net as it is a kind of interface. And uh, Thatcher's nominalist maneuver was precisely out to repersonalize the dough, to repersonalize it just enough for the people to see or recognize a neighbor in it, a neighbor shamelessly enjoying on their account. Like, let's put a face on the dough. How does the dough with a human face look like? It looks like an evil neighbor. But of course, that's only part of the neoliberal story. This is what people who have jobs and are not on the dole or any other social benefits should feel. This feeling is really encouraged, and the feeling is encouraged here. It's, and it's all very personal. On the other side, let's say on the side of the receivers, it's a very different story. No question of getting personal 
here. On the contrary, the purely and extremely non-personal bureaucratic net makes it sure that you don't get to talk meaningfully to any person. I suppose you have all seen uh, or heard about this Ken Loach's movie, I, Daniel Blake, which is a kind of brilliant rendering precisely of this, of the meaningful, uh, meaningless uh, 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 gibber deprived of all human and common sense that you are presented with uh, uh, this kind of impenetrable bureaucratic procedures when you actually need a dough. Um, and this is precisely there to prevent abuse, of course. That is to protect those who work from you who are on the dough. In other words, this is a safety net protecting those who don't particularly need protection from those who are supposed to need it. So I think these two aspects, like highly personalized and completely depersonalized, are two sides uh, uh, of the same logic, or that this kind of wall that is easily pe penetrable, transparent, as if non-existence from the one side, and at the same time utterly impenetrable from the other side, is perhaps one of the most salient topological figures of, of our time, so as well as of the functioning of, let's say, late capitalism. And I would also make this further point that with the capitalist economy and its singular form of value, uh, proximity is not the opposite of alienation, but rather its form. Mm -hmm. uh, in our social economic order, the place of maximum proximity is not, say, the neighborhood, but the market, now even the global market. It is there that our most intimate and precious possession, our labor force as value precisely, mingles shamelessly with other people's intimate possessions, compares to them, competes with them, gets exchanged for them. Well, this is not a bodily proximity. It is the proximity of our value, even of our surplus value. And this is also, I think, pre or precisely why uh, Lacan could predict, and this was back in 1967, he said our future as common markets will be balanced by an increasingly hard line, increasingly hard line extension of the process of segregation. So it is kind of very prof pro prophetic, I get, um, idea. Why? Because market is the place of compulsory, if alienated, proximity. Uh, it has often been pointed out that whereas globalization is all about the mobility of the capital, it is much less about mobility of the people. Yet I think to be more precise, we should add to this that the opposition here is actually not simply that between the capital and the people, but rather between people, like people bodies, and something in people more than people, precisely our value as labor force, with the later being situated outside ourselves, on the side precisely of the capital, its accumulation and its global circulation, and hence subjected to its radical abstraction. So it is me and something in me more than me, that is. And so this is, the, again, the kind of extremate point. And in this sense, I think the growing sense among the people that they are worth nothing or very little is, of course, directly dependent on the capitalist ontology in which being is value. <coughs> 
we are reduced to nothing but value, which sounds nice, but I think it is a very doubtful privilege, and Marx already saw this. So now I'm coming to my concluding point, and I will just briefly engage into some Marxian theory or uh, interpretation of it, uh, particularly the, the latest work of uh, David Harvey, uh, who recently has proposed a very elaborate reading of uh, the Marxist theory of value and, and more particularly of this famous, infamous labor theory of value. I won't go into any detail. I just wanted to uh, take out of this reading of his one term, which I think it's very interesting for this discussion also uh, of the neighbor and of the um, extremity as such. Um, namely, he has formulated a very important thesis according to which value in Marx's analysis is constituted as a dialectics, uh, this kind of perpetual dialectics between value and anti-value or non-value on many different points of levels. This notion of non-value, anti-value, is very interesting. Let's say whenever capital takes on a particular form as a production process or as a product waiting to be sold, as money waiting to be transferred or reinvested, then capital is virtually devalued. Capital lying at rest in any of these states in is variously termed negated, fallow, dormant, fixated, and so on. So um, it, it, there is this idea that as long as capital remains frozen in the form of a finished product, it cannot be ac active as capital. It is a negated capital. It is only value and has value when it circulates. OK, so the, I will just uh, sum up the Harvey's point, which is that anti-value kind of signals the potential breakdown in the continuity of capital circulation. But it also prefigures how capital's crises or tendencies to crises can take different forms and move around from one moment on the other. And actually, this movement is crucial. Because as already Marx knew, crises do not necessarily spell the end of capitalism, but set the stage for its renewal. It is a kind of kind of certain perpetual crisis is built into it. And it is precisely here that we see most clearly the, the, this kind of dialectical role of anti-value in the very reproduction uh, of capital. But the reconstitution of capital is all also has its limits. So, we could say, on the one hand, anti-value or non-value can constitute a crisis as precisely the productive, the propelling point of capitalism. But on the other hand, it is also the point where the latter is most vulnerable. It can collapse under the dead weight of anti-value. So anti-value signals the potential for breakdown in the continuity of capital circulation. And interestingly, it is precisely on this basis, I hear I would agree with him also, that Harv dismisses the political relevance of the appeals to include non-productive labor as non-value, which is basically the definition of non-value, the non-productive labor, uh, for example, domestic labor, into value production. He says, granting wages for housework simply reassures us that housework labor can, in principle, be integrated into the capitalist mode of production. 
There have been parallel movements to integrate the free gifts of nature into the stream of value production by some arbitrary valuation devices. This amounts to nothing more than a sophisticated greenwashing and commodification of a space from which a fierce attack upon the hegemony of the capitalist mode of production and its and our alienated relation to nature can be mounted. Okay, basically the idea is that uh, if there is a kind of possibility of a counterattack on capitalism, it cannot come from including more and more things like domestic labor into the very capitalist form of value, but rather from a kind of systematic and organized affirmation of, uh, of the non-value, of situating this uh, economy in different terms. Or, like, not from exempting some things from capital-related valorization, but by questioning this form itself. So, to say. so th this is uh, Harvey. I won't go into details and discussing how and if is this possible. I would simply like to conclude with pointing out uh, that there are, I think, some interesting parallels between uh, this Harvey's or Marxian notion of the non-value or anti-value and what Lacan called jouissance, enjoyment. I would even go as far as to say that perhaps jouissance is precisely a psych the psychoanalytic concept of anti-value. And like the Marxian non or anti-value, it can also be and de facto is integrated, pulled into the economy and its dialectics of valorization. Uh, which is why, which is one of the reasons for Lacan's coming up with the term surplus enjoyment, surplus jouissance, which he coined directly upon the Marxian notion of surplus value. There is also this idea that jouissance is actually an become an imperative. It's not something that we cannot get. It's, un it's, uh, it's suppressive because it is kind of uh, it has a form of injunction, enjoy. By being enjoined that it uh, kind of uh, has its hold upon us. So this is, but this is a kind of something that Lacan also um, associates with a certain uh, historical uh, event or shift. <coughs> uh, so there is this kind of canonical definition of uh, jouissance in, in Lacan, which is uh, from the seminar Encore, where, where he says, jouissance is what serves no purpose. Maybe just very briefly, jouissance is what serves no purpose. And I think it is this that points directly to its state of so similarity, proximity to this anti-value in Marx, and the, the, there is this famous passage from the first chapter of The Capital on which Harvey based his uh, theory of anti-value, where Marx says, nothing can be a value without being an object of utility. This is within capitalist economy, of course. If the thing is useless, it is so is the labor contained in it. The labor does not count as labor and therefore creates no value. So. Okay, jouissance is what serves no purpose. It does not count. And yet, and yet it can be caught up precisely in the discourse as the very source of value, very much in the same way as the Marxist dialectics of value and anti-value. And this is precisely the kind of historic occurrence that Lacan relates to the rise of uh, what he calls a capitalist discourse or social bond. For instance, he says, just two very brief quotes from the seminar, The Other Side of 
psychoanalysis where he introduces this discussion of the social bonds, for different social bonds. He says, the important point is that on a certain day, surplus jouissance became calculable, could be counted, totalized. This is where the accumulation of the capital begins. Or another quote, the secret of the worker himself is to be reduced to being no longer anything but value. Surplus jouissance is no longer surplus jouissance, but is inscribed simply as value to be inscribed or in or deduced from the totality of whatever it is accumulating. So I think this is, okay, this could be developed much more in detail, but I think just to give an idea which, why I think that uh, this is kind of similar to the transformation of value and anti-value in, in, uh, in, in Harvey. It's capitalization. A surplus value is non-value that counts. Yeah, so when we say non-value, of course, it doesn't mean that this is something insignificant. It means that it does not precisely count as value, and then it starts to count. In this permutation, it is this permutation that generates precisely the new surplus value, even more of it. So in this sense, capital progresses by including more and more things into the realm of value and its countability. Okay, so in the end, I would just try to answer very briefly this question. What do we gain by this co-staging of jouissance and anti-value? I guess for an orthodox Marxist, this can sound as an attempt to kind of inscribe the Marxist historical theory within a certain eternal psychology of the human, which is not what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting is simply that first, libidinal and social economies are far from being simply unrelated. But moreover, I think psychoanalysis can actually help us understand a very important structural topological feature of the global market, precisely. It's being now the universal point of our extremacy, precisely. It is not simply outside nor inside. We, we sweat and spit into its pot, and what we get back often looks sordid and impossible to swallow. And yet it is us, it is our value, no doubt about it. What makes it all the more horrible, and which also makes it all the more uh, necessary to invent this neighbor on whom we can pin this horror. And I think I do not hate this neighbor because he or she is so different. I think the cultural difference today is more like a handy prop that masks a much more disturbing sameness, which is the, the true problem. This difference, uh, colorful difference, precisely makes it possible for me not to see or grasp that what I can nevertheless kind of feel deeply in my bones. Namely, that the worthless piece of shit out there is, in fact, me. And that it is here that perhaps we should try to find a way to, to rebel. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs>